Welcome to Stay Gold, an Outsiders podcast. My name is Sam Mulberry, and I am joined as always by... Esme Mulberry. Esme, we are watching our way through the 2005 release of The Outsiders, the complete novel by Francis Ford Coppola, his re-edit of his 1983 film, The Outsiders. But we're doing it five minutes at a time, so in five-minute segments... Um, We have made it to the 35-minute mark, so today we're going to be talking about roughly the 35-minute mark to the 40-minute mark of the film. Um, Before we dive into that, though, we need to do a little segment we call Previously on Stay Gold. So after Ponyboy wakes up from accidentally falling asleep in the lot with Johnny, he runs home and Derry and Soda Pop were waiting for him, and Derry's super angry an argument occurs, it escalates, and Derry kind of shoves him. Ponyboy is then understandably very upset and runs out of the house. He then um, meets Johnny when he's running um, in the lot, and he tells him that they're going to run away together. So they go, and then Ponyboy tells Johnny what happens, um, and he's like, let's walk to the park and back, and then I'll maybe have calmed down enough to go home. But when they're at the park... The blue Mustang with five socias comes and there's Bob and Randy and they start kind of attacking them and they start drowning Ponyboy. And right as we left off, Johnny to the side has gotten up while holding a knife. All right. So we open this five minutes with Ponyboy's head under the water. Uh, The Marquette's Outer Limits is still playing or Out of Limits, sorry, is still playing. Um, And we see the screen is sort of washed over with uh, sort of this red blood, and then it fades to black. Really cool shot. It's also such a smart thing, because in the book, he even talks about how, like, then his vision went red and then black. So Mm -hmm. it does that in the movie, and I love it. Yeah, no, it's really... uh, I actually think this is a a fairly well-directed five minutes of the the movie. Yeah. Um, I think that effect is really cool. So it fades to black, and then we fade back in as the music fades... And we get this overhead shot of the fountain, and it's really, really cool, like a, kind of like a crane shot up over top of it. And we see um, Johnny sitting by the edge of the fountain. We see Pony Boy kind of laid out on his back by the fountain. We see Randy kind of laying on, or excuse me, Bob kind of laying on his side. And we see a trail of what is blood leading from his body to the fountain. And in the fountain, we see the sort of clouds of red in the water of the fountain as the as the fountain continues to kind of mix the mix the water around. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a it's a, it's a it's a beautiful shot, and it sort of tells a story, kind of in the way that like if you are a detective looking at a crime scene, you're like, okay, what are all the pieces that I have here? Um, and 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 you can you can piece everything that happened that we didn't see together by starting to to look at this shot and I, so I really really like that um, <clears throat> so um, we hear in the background we hear a train whistle uh, this is a motif at this point this is a motif in this movie right the the train whistle mm-hmm. and we see a close-up of pony boy face as he's coming to and it's and so his face is upside down it's 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 as if he's laying on the ground and we're standing above him kind of over his head and as his eyes are opening and coming to now this is interesting because it sort of echoes a shot from the very beginning of coppola's apocalypse now 
where uh, Martin Sheen's character is is in a hotel room and you're looking at him from over top and he's coming to you and it's very close up on his eyes and face. Um, so I, I like that as a as a little um, uh, kind of homage to that maybe. Um, so we see Pony Boy start to roll over and look over at Johnny, and as it does, as we see this. It cuts to Pony Pony Boy's point of view. So as we see Johnny, the camera is rolling just in the same way Pony Boy is rolling. And we see Johnny, Johnny, who's not moving. We see his image slowly become upright in the frame Mm -hmm. um, as we're sort of seeing things through Pony Boy's eyes. And we see Johnny sitting there crying to to himself. Uh, And he says to Pony Boy, he says... Uh, he's he's holding his knife and he says, I killed him. I killed that boy. And we see Pony Boy look over at Bob's dead body, again, in another sort of Pony Boy, Pony Boy point of view shot. Um, and then Pony tells Johnny he's going to be sick. Right? So so I love the way that, that this is shot where we're into, um, we're into Pony Boy's, we're seeing his realizations through mm-hmm. his eyes. Yeah. I always love in movies when they do the shots of like, this is what this person would actually be looking at. And there's a lot in this scene, and it really does help kind of show the kind of realization of what happened. And it's really cool the way that they do it. Yeah, I feel like it moves from disorientation to discovery mm-hmm. a, a couple times with these shots. And I think that's um, – you know, we haven't talked a lot about the filmmaking in this movie a lot. But I feel like this five minutes has – uh, some particularly well composed shots, and I think we've we've seen a bunch of them here. So Pony gets up uh, to be sick, and I love how Johnny kind of gives him permission. He's like, "It's okay, I won't watch." Um, so Pony Boy goes over to the merry-go-round and vomits, and Johnny walks over, and he Johnny almost like he walks right past Bob's body. It's almost like he steps over. He doesn't step over, but yeah, it, but he like walks right past it as if it's not there. This is, like, in the book, they don't get up and walk somewhere else. They kind of stay in the same spot. But, like, I almost like more that they distance themselves mm-hmm. from Bob. Because that makes more sense in my mind that they, their first instinct is let's get a little physically away from this. Sure. But the way that the, that the camera uh, is set up here, uh, Bob's body constantly haunts shots of Johnny in this scene. Again, this yeah. is where I think the filmmaking is pretty bravero at this point. Um, so so Pony says, you know, you really did kill him. And Johnny says, I had to. They were drowning you. They might have killed you. And Pony asks about the other guys. And Johnny says, they ran off when I stabbed him. And th- like I said, throughout this whole sequence, there's you're seeing different shots of Johnny. But they frame it so you always see Bob's body in the background. And sometimes in a deep focus kind of way, sometimes it's blurry, but sometimes it's a deep focus where you're seeing Johnny in the foreground and Bob in the background. And it's, so it's, it is, it's like yeah. this is hovering over, over his shoulder like he can't escape it, the mm-hmm. reality of it. Um, this part is a little different um, – from the book there's a couple other parts in this conversation between them but this is like the first one is after um johnny says like they were drowning you like they were gonna kill you he says and they were gonna beat me up too and then the book pointed by says like they did before and then johnny says yeah like they did before so that's like they're really confirming like these are the same people and then also in the book johnny then proceeds to tell the story of what happened and you don't 
like they don't have the whole story but it's the last line of then they just ran like pony boy doesn't ask what happened to mm-hmm. the other guys um so it's slightly changed but i actually like it a little better in the movie because when pony boy asked him like they beat him up like they did before it just seemed like a kind of almost insensitive line to him right right so i like how this is a little better in the movie well and i like that he doesn't say anything it's just sort of like we know what happened like we yeah and this is where coppola has the advantage of he can lay that shot out so you can piece the whole story together without having to see it yeah. i think there's something great about that this has this time jump and what's great is it's unclear it's like okay what time is it now you yeah. know like like how long have they been laying there how long have they been sitting there how long ago was it that everybody else left i mean it it feels like it could be five minutes. It feels like it could be an hour. Yeah. Although the clock is ticking, it is still nighttime right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to get a sense of time in a little bit here. Uh, one of those things that we always love in storytelling is when we get an indication of what time it is. We know that when Pony went back to his house, it was two a- roughly 2 a.m. Yeah. Because Derry says that. And we're going to hear another time indicator in a little bit. So we know this is actually happening in a pretty compressed uh, amount of time. So uh, we see them sitting there and then we cut, we kind of fade to an exterior shot of a bar or roadhouse or something. Uh, we hear country music playing and it's still at night. So so this is still pretty close in time. Mm-hmm. Um, we see Pony Boy and Johnny uh, approaching uh, and they bang on the door and a man um, who is, uh, I guess he is named in the movie eventually um, uh Dally will refer to him as Buck. In the book, we know this is Buck Merrill, mm-hmm. right? Uh, he opens the door and asks what they want. And we see him only kind of in the red light of the barroom neon, right? So they're yeah. in this sort of cool, dark, bluish moonlight, and he's in this red light of the of the bar. Yeah. That whole thing is really interesting to me, like what this building is, because in the book, it describes it very similar, but it also is like, seems like where buck lives and there's like more bedrooms upstairs so it seems like this big house yeah and it's definitely like a living room type area it's just it's really interesting Isn't it, to but, me. but there's also like all these like neon beer signs and yeah stuff up, like it's a bar i think it's a bar that has living quarters in it i think it's a big house that he turned into a bar because sure it sure seems, but it is functioning yeah as a, but it's, it's not it's functioning as a bar but i think it's also like not supposed to be but i would say it's not exactly a house in the way that like the curtis house is a house like this is a big kind of cube of a building right Mm -hmm. it looks like it so it looks like it was maybe an apartment like a yeah or or, or, well i know a lot of a lot of buildings have apartments on the in on the upstairs and then in the downstairs they have other spaces so it might be like a like a, it does feel like a house. Yeah, because the downstairs again also looks like part of it seems like a living room. The other part almost looks a little kitchen like. Yeah. So it seems like it's this house with then it was intended of like it's a house where someone lives with they had rooms that they were going to rent to maybe people. like a boarding house. Yeah, like a boarding house, yeah. and then he just turned it into a bar. Yeah, yeah. That that actually that feels like what it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's it's definitely an interesting space. Now. I want to talk about music here. Yeah. Uh, because there is a country song playing underneath this. Now, it is not a song. It's a song that is also playing in the 1983 version. It's the mm-hmm. same song. 
Um, so when I looked at the, I don't think, I don't remember if this song shows up in the credits of the, the, uh, complete novel in terms of the songs that they added. I don't think that it does. Maybe it does. I didn't, I didn't double check that. I did look up what the song was and the song is a song by RC Bannon called, uh, Loveless Motel. Mm-hmm. Now I listened to this and I thought, I don't know a lot of, a lot about country music, but this song to me sounds like the country music of my childhood, not the country music of Essie Hinton's childhood. Yeah. Um, it, like it just, it, it sounded like a early eighties country song, which is a particular, a particular genre of music that I don't like. Um, and it, in fact, it is, it is a 1978 recording. So it doesn't fit the time period. Um, again, this was in the this was the song used in the '83 version cut of the movie, um, and he he keeps it in. I kind of wish it wasn't. I wish yeah. that, that he had done something else. Now, what's interesting is you were talking about the description of Buck Merrill in the book, and they actually give music specifics for Buck Merrill. Yeah, um, they said he liked Hank Williams, mm-hmm. and that is brought up like three or four times in this scene. Like it is a very like definite part of his character and it's interesting to me that in the movie they just didn't have one of those songs or even a song from that time yeah because it's very specific i wonder in 2005 if it was if it was the cost of like licensing hank williams yeah I, i don't know what's weird is in 83 why does he not go get a hank williams song which i don't mm-hmm. think would have been that expensive it's weird that they pick what is so clearly a 1978 yeah. Song. Although I wonder in in eighty three, I wonder how interested they were in making this feel period specific because they obviously don't do period music or, mm-hmm. or or they do very very little of it. I think the Van Morrison song, you know, I, um, is uh, maybe period specific. Although now that we're talking, I'm wondering what year Van Morrison's Gloria came out. Yeah. Because. Um, that may have been that may be a little incongruent, but I don't think by that much. Um, but definitely, this song sounds like the late seventies, early eighties. So I don't. So yeah. I don't love. I, I mean, again, I don't love that genre of music anyhow. I but I don't love that song choice, and I wish I wish that was something where something else could have played. But it may have just been a rights issue. Mm-hmm. It may have also been a the way the film was mastered that it was difficult to take that song out. Yeah. Um, I'd also like to point out that in the description of Buck Merrill, there's rodeo references. And throughout this part in the book, there's other rodeo references. I just want to bring that up. Yeah, because you're, 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 <laughs> you, you like to point out how much the, the uh, presence of the rodeo has been excised from this yeah. movie. Although it's all over the book. And it's interesting, too, because in this part, when they talk about the rodeo stuff, because the reason they bring it up with Buck Merrill is he's Dally's rodeo partner. And he's the one who got Dally a job as a jockey. And then Ponyboy says that what Dally does as a jockey is the only thing he does honestly. Mm. So, like, it, it does kind of change how you view Dally as a person of, like, he has a friend who got him a job and he does that job honestly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But none of that's here. Yeah. None um, of it's here. So, uh, so Buck opens the door. Johnny says they, they got to see D- Dally. Buck says to John, or that Dally's busy. Johnny protests and he says, just tell him it's Pony Boy and Johnny. He'll come. So we mm-hmm. see Buck shut the door on them. 
um, because he's obviously not going to invite these kids in. I mean, these are a 14-year-old and a 16-year-old. I'm sure this place seems potentially a little extra legal, potentially anyhow. Yeah. So I'm thinking bringing kids into this is not something he's particularly excited about. Um, So when he leaves, they kind of walk around so they can peek into the windows and they see men and women drinking, carrying on, kind of partying in there. Um, And eventually we see a shirtless Dally coming to the door. Uh, And Pony tells him point blank, Johnny killed the Soch. Yeah. Um, And Dally invites them in and he says, all right, good for you. Let's go. (laughs) It's one of my favorite lines. It's also a book line, too, is because in the book, it's like Johnny tells him the whole story. Yeah. Which obviously didn't say the movie because we just watched it. We don't need to hear the whole story. And um, Dally's response to this entire story is just good for you. And what I love about it is that we've talked a lot about awkward book lines that are like, they don't land. Like yeah. Dylan kills that line. Like yeah. it's really good. It's really good. I mean, he's, he's already kind of our favorite actor in this uh-huh. movie. It seems like, uh, so far. And he, yeah, like it, it rolls off his tongue in a, in a way where it's like, it's kind of a weird thing to say and he nails it. So, uh, so well done, done to him on that. Um, so he invites them in, uh, and, uh, Johnny says that they thought that if anyone could get them out of tr- trouble, Dally could. And he apologizes for tearing um, Dally away from the party that they see going on there. Uh, and Dally says, you know, like he wasn't part of the party. Uh, anyway, he says that he got into a, f- he was trying to get some sleep. He had a fight with uh, Shepard earlier with Tim Shepard. Mm-hmm. So, um, which is part of why they introduced Tim Shepard in person earlier. So there's the sense that Tim Shepard is looking for him. So if we wondered, well, what was Dally doing this whole time that they were doing this? Well, part of it is he, he got into a fight with Tim Shepard. Yeah. Um, so, so that, that is sort of the payoff to him showing up at the movies. So as they, uh, as he invites them in, uh, Dally notices that Pony is wet, right? Cause he had been in the fountain. So his clothes mm-hmm. are soaked. Um, uh, and Pony starts to wander through the bar inside, but Dally pulls him upstairs into the bedroom. There's a little dog that's walking down the stairs. or big, Not even a little dog, like a yeah. short dog, but like a chunky short dog. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe like a bulldog or something. I, I couldn't yeah. quite tell what kind of dog it was. But um, we, when we rewatched it, the dog jumped out to both of us. So. Yeah, I noticed the dog the other times too. And like, I both kind of like it, but I'm also a little like it's an interesting choice, but... Yeah, it's know. just color. It's, yeah, it's, it's color, color to the world, right? Um, so Dally says to Pony, hey, stupid, take the sweatshirt off. You'll freeze to death. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like that just because it's, um, uh, again, if we think about the greasers as a family, right, that he is in a parenting role here a little bit. To, yeah. Like, it's like, come on, make make good choices here. <laughs> you know, and where where when if Derry were to say that, Pony would think oh you hate me and all but when dally says it it's just matter of fact like it's also it's funny because in the book um he says this but he says it in a different way and he kind of does the same like i think he even says like you never think and does more of a like dairy like that's what i was waiting for i was waiting for the echoes of dairy and i didn't hear and then because then in the book it's like Pony Boy's very startled by this, and it's like he said it just like dairy and i kind of like that they then don't have that in the movie of just like Dally is then almost this, not really, I guess what he says isn't really kind, but more in his own way, gentler than like repeatedly calling him 
stupid yeah 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 i mean it's yeah it's definitely a dally a dally way to say it mm-hmm. um so pony boy starts to dry off uh and dally pulls a revolver out of the dresser and hands it to johnny and says it's loaded mm-hmm. and then he gives them fifty dollars yeah so we were curious what is how much money is fifty dollars in 1965 um fifty dollars in 1965 is the equivalent of around Four hundred seventy dollars and thirty-three cents today. So this is a lot of money. It's a significant amount of money. Now, in the book, do they talk? I mean, I know he gives them money. Does it? Is it fifty dollars or? It is fifty dollars, but they also explain how he got it. For one thing, he um he leaves the room before he gets um the shirt, the money, and the gun, and he says that he got gets it from Buck because it was like from the last race he did. Okay. So it also has like rodeo connections with that of like this is money he came by honestly that he worked for and got and he is now giving it to them. So um so so he gives them the gun, he gives them money, he gives uh Pony Boy one of Buck's shirts mm-hmm. that's too big for him, which is also part I mean that's a thing in the story, right? That he's um has yeah. one of Buck's shirts. And then Dally says, look, I'm not itching to be the one to tell your big brother about this and get my head kicked in. Pony Boy says, well, don't tell him then. Now, uh, this also, again, it talks about the relationships. Um, There's also this sense that even Dally, who's the toughest person we've seen by far, Mm -hmm. is like kind of afraid of Dairy. He's like, I don't, I don't, not that he thinks that Dairy would necessarily beat Dally, but he's like, I don't know. And I don't. Like he's not somebody I'm interested in getting into a fight with, yeah. You know, so uh, so I think that's interesting. That sh- it tells you something about Dairy, mm-hmm. um, how Dally views him. Uh, so then, like I said, Dally gives Ponyboy one of Buck shirts, uh, and then he pulls them together to give them instructions. So I'm just going to read his instructions because this sets up where we're going to be going in the next five minutes. He says, "Get the 315 train to Windricksville. It's a freight." There's an abandoned church on top of Jay Mountain. There's a pump in the back so you don't have to worry about water. Get a week's supply of food right away this morning before the story gets out. Then don't so much as stick your noses outside the door. Am I clear? Okay. I'm going to tell you exactly what has changed in this from the book. Okay. Um, at the beginning, he says, get the f- 315 freight to Windricksville windricksville and then doesn't specify like it's a freight other than that the rest of it is word for word it sounded like yeah the rest of it he doesn't have the mi clear line but then there's actually a line that comes after that that's in the next five minutes that is how he ends it in the book Mm -hmm. but other than that it is exactly what he says yeah yeah so they're 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 just pulling straight hint in here now the interesting thing here so he's telling them to catch the the uh, 315 freight yeah. So if Pony Boy got home at two, and they're st- they still have time to get to the train, even if it's three ten right now, that means all of this stuff happened within just over an hour. Yeah. In terms of him running, finding Johnny, going to the park, the running with the Soches, Johnny killing Bob, all of that, them getting to this roadhouse, all of this happened in a really compressed period of time. Yeah. Which is doable. It's just interesting to think like, you know, I think of a lot of time having passed, but a lot of time has not passed Mm-mm. during this. So um, you've talked about book things. Other, uh, do you have other, other sort of book observations mm-hmm. here? Well, there's 
There's a couple of things I didn't mention. Um, the conversation they have at the park goes a little bit longer in the book, and it kind of has them saying, like, we need money and a plan, and then eventually Johnny's like, we need to find Dally. Okay. Because th- um, th- that is something that just gets cut here, and instead we get Johnny saying when they've gotten to Dally, we didn't mm-hmm. know who else. We thought if anybody could get us out of this, it's you. We didn't know what else yeah. to do. So that's the replacement for that. Yeah, and I do I do like that a tiny bit more because also there's in that scene, Johnny says, we need money, a plan, and maybe a gun. And it's like you said exactly what he gives you, and yeah. that seems a little... Yeah. Mm. There's a, this seems like there's more economy to the, the yeah. way you can do this with film. And then the other thing that changes when, when they then do come to the door... In the book, Ponyboy talks a little bit more than he does here. He even talks to Buck. So it makes Johnny seem a lot more assertive and a lot less afraid than he actually is. Mm-hmm. But other than that, like, again, the whole thing Dally says is word for word. Every, Pretty much everything they say is word for word. Um, So it's, like, it's very accurate. Let me ask you this, because we've talked a lot about this. Is the setting for Buck Merrill's place and the bedroom where that comes, does that line up with what you had pictured or is it pretty much yeah i feel the same way it's funny kind of like neon light stuff like that is kind of what i pictured because i read this book as an adult for the first time and before seeing anything from the movie but like it's kind of exactly what i imagined yeah so again i feel like there is something faithful in the adaptation if that if that happens so if we were to score Mm -hmm. this on a scale of zero to ten in terms of its fidelity to the se hinton book i would just like the last episode give it a nine honestly because it's like they cut out a little bit they change tiny things but everything that happens happens and it's like word for word Hmm. i'm wondering if we could if we could knock half a point off for the 1978 song though yeah, good point. I might go eight point five then. Yeah, that that does bother me. Yeah, because because there is there is the like especially actually you know what I'm gonna argue it should go down to eight because not only do they have a 1978 song but she talks about Buck Merrill's music. Yeah, preference. good point. Yeah, I so might go down to an eight. Okay, let's, go let's down pull to that eight. to eight. Yeah, because that I wasn't thinking about that. That that is kind of a big thing. And we hear a lot of that song. We yes. probably hear two two and a half minutes of that song playing in the background as they're. Even when they're up in the bedroom, you can kind of hear it in the background. Yeah. So, yeah. To me, that's that's one that I don't I don't love. Yeah. That. Um, and and it seemed I would love to see that scene recut with period era either Hank Williams or just any other kind of country music from that time. Yeah, because like if it wasn't Hank Williams and you did country music from that time period, to be like, okay, I can get past that because it's like that's just what happened to be playing. On yeah. the jukebox at that time, mm-hmm. yeah. Because even though it's just saying the book, like when they came, it was Hank Williams playing. But like you can, yeah, move past that. Get on, get on with it. But it's like it bothers me that it's a song that wouldn't even have existed at that yeah. time. So I've talked you down to an eight. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I think that's good. Um, should we do a deep dive? Yeah. All right. So this deep dive uh, is on a person who's in this five minutes has a very small part, uh, but is a significant person. And that is Tom Waits. So Tom Waits plays Buck Merrill. Um, you know, very, very, very small part. I think he has one line, two lines. So he says, what do you want? And he's busy, I think is all yeah. that he says. Um, 
But uh, do you know who? Do you know anything about Tom Waits? No. All right. So Tom Waits was born December seventh, nineteen forty nine. Um, so he's significantly older than. Um, I mean, he's what uh, thirteen years older even than Swayze. So so Waits is in his mid forties in this movie. Um, he's born in Pomona, California. Uh, Waits is famous not as an actor but as a musician. Um, so he was, uh, as a, as a young musician, he was inspired by the music of Bob Dylan and the writers of the beat generation. Um, and he started in his musical career kind of in the folk music scene in the sixties. Um, but then, uh, kind of mid late sixties, but then moved to work primarily in jazz in the 1970s. Um, but since the eighties, his music has reflected a greater influence from blues, rock, vaudeville, experimental music, things like that. Um, throughout the 70s, he recorded six studio albums, mostly kind of in the uh, at- attached to the jazz genre. Uh, Coppola commissioned Waits to write music for his 1982 film, One from the Heart, to write the score for that. Waits was nominated for an Oscar for the score and has a small part in the film as a trumpet player. So um, mm-hmm. Coppola liked Tom Waits' music, wanted him to write the score for One to the Heart, put him in One to the Heart, or One from the Heart. In 1983, Coppola comes back to Waits and casts him in the role of Buck Merrill. So kind of a tip of the hat to this musician that he likes. Um, Waits ends up appearing in four more Coppola films. So he has a small cameo roles in Rumblefish in 1983, The Cotton Club in 1984, Bram Stoker's Dracula in 92, and Twixt in um, 2011. So Coppola... And Waits have a, you know, Coppola has affection for Waits and finds little little roles for him in his movies. Um, Waits has gone on, although he's primarily, like I said, a musician, gone on to have uh, parts in 39 films, working with a lot of pretty um, prominent directors, Jim Jarmusch, Terry Gilliam, Robert Altman, Paul Thomas Anderson, the Coen brothers. Um, and again, these are often small parts, but mm-hmm. um, but, you know, gets to work with a lot of great filmmakers. In his five-decade career as a musician, Waits, Waits released 17 studio albums, three live albums, seven compilations, 23 singles, two soundtracks, and one box set. Uh, in 2010, he was included among Rolling Stone's 100 Greatest Singers. In 2011, he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And in 2015, he was ranked as number 55 on Rolling Stone's list of the 100 greatest songwriters of all time. So uh, it's just it's always fun to see Tom Waits sort of pop up. I'm more familiar with him as a musician, but it's in, it was interesting when I was going through the cast list. Because uh, when I saw Buck, I'm like, I think I know who that is. And then I went through the cast list and I'm like, that is Tom Waits. He has a very distinct um, kind of deep kind of gravelly voice Mm -hmm. so i think that's that's part of why people like him in cameo roles is you get to you get to use that voice a little bit so um so a small part but uh but but waits is a again a a very famous person who is attached uh to the outsiders all right esme uh i think this is a tricky one but let's get to who won the five (sighs) um i'm gonna go through the nominees that i thought of uh, so we have Ralph Macchio, C. Thomas Howell. I think we can just keep those at the top of the list for most of the movie because they're in most of the movie. Um, Leaf Garrett as a dead Bob Sheldon. I, I left him in there because uh, his body's laying there. Uh, yeah. and, and, and actually his his body appears in, a, in, in I think, in, in prominent ways. Um, and this is the last time we're going to have him here. Uh, 
Just a tip of the hat to Tom Waits as Buck Merrill. There's no way he wins the five with two lines. Uh, Matt Dillon is Dally Winston, who, um, as we said, whenever he pops up in this movie, he sort of takes it over. Um, and then I also threw Francis Ford Coppola in here. We talked about how well shot and well directed this this section is. Um, so maybe I'm tipping my hand a little bit, but I put. I mean, you can put Coppola every time because mm-hmm. he made the movie, but. There, this has some cinematic choices that I think are pretty strong. So I thought I would throw him in there as well. What are your thoughts? Um, it's hard. Uh, I do actually kind of agree with the Francis Ford Coppola. Like, I do think there's a lot of really good shots in this. Um, and I part of me wants to say Matt Dillon, but I also don't because I feel like I don't know. It's just. Here's what I would say about here's what I would say about the spirit of who won the five. Yeah. This is not um democratic. This is not the idea of like, well, we have to sort of or I should say it's not communist. We're not yeah. here to share the wealth. Mm-hmm. Um it is we we we're not worried about who won previous fives. I think it's Dylan or Coppola, because I think Coppola yeah. wins the first half of this, but I think Dylan wins the second half. He again, he is so charismatic when he's on mm-hmm. screen, that character, he pulls that off. I think it's a pretty even split. I think you could go either way, and I would say it is a it is a good choice and the right choice. Yeah, well, my reason for not picking Matt Dillon is actually just because he's only in the second half. And, like, my other one was actually Ralph Macchio because I feel like he does some acting that I think is actually, like, really mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. Both, like, just with his facial expressions. So, and he's also, like, in the full five minutes and does a great job in that five minutes. Sure. I thought about him too. I especially yeah. as we were rewatching the five before we recorded, I I thought, you know, Machio is pretty good in this. Yeah. And and not only is he pretty good, he's pretty good and I'm not seeing Daniel LaRusso. I yeah. feel like I I feel like he is Johnny cuz there's moments in this where he cuz he's so iconically Daniel LaRusso to me that I sometimes struggle. But I feel like I'm in the moment here, and I really do feel him as a different character with a different yeah. energy. I'm good with Machu if you want to go that way. I kind of want to go Machu. Okay, okay. Uh, I'm going to make one last case for Coppola, mm-hmm. okay? But I think we're going to give this to Machu. Here's, I'm going to give you two reasons for Coppola. One is the stuff we talked about, the visuals, the directing. Uh-huh. The other part is technically in this five minutes, we do hear Out of Limits – we do we we do hear the that musical switch from the Carmine Coppola score, uh-huh. so we we can give him credit for that. But here's why he doesn't win. Yeah, because for two and a half minutes we hear Loveless Motel. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like that he would mm. if that's okay. If that's Hank Williams, we give it to Coppola, but it's not Hank Williams. It's not. So so we're gonna give this to Ralph Macchio, winning his first five and. I have a feeling there's more to come. We were just looking ahead a little bit, and there's going to be lots of C. Thomas Howell and and um, and Ralph Macchio, kind of just the two of them scenes coming up as they get out to Windricksville. So I have a feeling they're going to rack up some wins there. Yeah. Um, but but I do think this is legitimately, it's the best he's been in this movie so far, and he's good in this movie. But this is yeah, this is probably the best he's been within the first forty minutes of the movie. Mm-hmm. All right, Esme, uh, I feel good about about giving that award there. I feel good about where we're at. We're 40 minutes into the movie. 
The movie is um, is an hour and 55 minutes long. So we're well into this movie. We have had our big inciting incident, which is going to push the story forward. We know where it's headed. You can tell in the next five minutes we're going to be on the train to Windricksville. We're going to be at the church in Windricksville. Um, so the movie's going to take on a very different look for sure. Yeah. Uh, and a very different tone um, as this becomes about two characters – um, I think it's going to be a lot of dialogue, a lot of conversation happening. Um, if I remember the book well, I remember the book better than the movie at this point for yeah, where I we're do headed. Too. But I think that I think this project gets very interesting as we move out of this first part and into the into the into the country uh, section of this story. Yeah. That is all the time that we have. Hopefully, you've enjoyed listening to this. Um, if you like. Uh, R.C. Bannon's Loveless Ho- Loveless Motel, and you think that not only should it be in the movie, but they should play it twice in the movie. Um, or if you agree, if you think if you think R.C. Bannon should have won the five because we didn't even put him on the list, um, email us channel thirty nine hundred at gmail dot com. Tell us that we're wrong. Tell tell us that Coppola made all the right moves here and he should have won the five. Tell us that. Um, that you think the the two lines from Tom Waits deserve the five. Tell us that the lifeless body of Leaf Garrett as Bob Sheldon should have won the five. Channel3900 at gmail.com. That is all the time that we have. We will be back next week to talk about the next five minutes. But until then, stay gold. Stay gold.